Chris talked last week about how we get into the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God is. What we know so far is that the kingdom of God is not simply a place like heaven where we all hope to go, but the kingdom is something that is within us. Jesus said the kingdom is in front of you. The kingdom is within you. It's a culture. It's a way of living as much as it is an actual place. So how do we get into that way? Let me start by just asking a few questions that I think, at least I hope, will resonate with you. They come from the last phrase in this great parable that Jesus told where he said, I tell you that it is this man and not the other that went home justified. So the first question is, who are the justified? And how do you know? I think the question is written in our souls so we cannot avoid it. If you're a Christian, then you answer to someone outside of you, probably God, and you answer to the judgment. And so everything that you're doing in this life, you feel like you have to justify it by lining it up with God and the judgment. You don't want to do anything that will get you in trouble in the judgment, and you don't want to do anything that will get you in trouble with God. So the justified for you are people that are aligned with God. If you're not a Christian, if you're not really very religious, you still have innate desire to be justified. I think that's probably why you rationalize when things go wrong. It's why you seek to perform a certain way. You want to get better instead of worse. It's why you hide evil when you do it or you try to rationalize it away. It's because you know that there is something or someone out there. It may not be God. It may not be judgment. But there is someone. It might just be public opinion. But there is something or someone to whom you have to give accountability. And that's why we rationalize so often whenever we do things wrong. If we didn't have this innate sense to be justified with something or someone, then we would just do whatever we wanted and move on mindlessly. But we don't. We have this stamped in our soul. The first question is, who are the justified? And what does it take to be justified with that person? So, for instance, uh, as I read in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 26, Moses says, The Lord your God commands you this day to follow these decrees and laws. For you've declared that the Lord is your God and you'll walk in his ways. And the Lord has declared that you are his people, his treasured possession. And then in Psalm chapter 15, he, the psalmist says, Who will live in your holy hill? Translated, who will go to heaven? Who gets to go to heaven? Who gets to stay in the sanctuary of God? Now watch the list. One, his walk is blameless. He does what is right. Two, he speaks truth from his heart. There's no slander on his tongue. Three, he does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man. Four, he despises a vile person, but he fears the Lord. Five, it's the person who keeps his oath even when it hurts. And six, he lends his money without interest and does not accept a bribe. If he does these things, he'll never be shaken. So, you know, I mean, in the church, we often say, who goes to heaven? It's the people who accept Jesus. But the psalmist says, 
the people who accept Jesus, this is how they live. That's a big deal. It isn't just about an intellectual ascent. Jesus is Lord. The devil knows this. And is the devil still? Until the lifestyle changes, one is not aligned with God. Are you with me? So the first question is, who is justified? Psalm, Deuteronomy answers that. Second question, where did you get those ideas? I've just cited two passages of Scripture so I could say to you, well, I get them from the Bible, but the truth is that my view on this is shaped as much by my culture, by my family, by the way I was raised, by the particular Bible I read. It's not the Koran. I'm not up here citing the Bhagavad Gita. I'm citing what I consider to be... So my mind is shaped by convictions that other people have handed me. And I suspect that, 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 that yours is too. I suspect that, that you have in your mind a picture of who justified people are. And even though you have scripture verses to, to back that up, you got those convictions largely from the community that you were born into and the one that you belong to every week. If I were up here stumping some other gospel and you stayed with us, you shouldn't, but if you did, then your minds might be changed. So who are the justified and where did you get those ideas? And then the third unsettling question is, are you sure that you're right? I believe that whole cultures, whole churches, families, generations tend to migrate toward whatever vision they have of a justified life. They have somewhere in their conscience an image of a God, a supreme being that is holier than thou. And they have some idea, if conscience alone, what it takes to reconcile with him. And whole churches and generations tend to move naturally, silently towards those images. So that in some churches, what people consider a spiritual person is different from another church. And what one generation considers a spiritual person is different from another generation. Generations tend to migrate as well. But my point is, those questions are innate. They're primal. They are stamped on our souls. And we tend subconsciously to move in the direction of the answer to those questions. Are we right? What if we're not? Jesus said there were two men that went up to the temple. Now, the temple's not the synagogue. The synagogue is where they teach. But the temple is where you worship. 
So the temple has Old Testament connections. When a person comes to the temple, they come in order to worship. They come in order to be in the presence of the Almighty God. For God said in Exodus 25, have them make for me a dwelling place, a sanctuary, a temple, and I myself will come and live among them. So when you went to the temple, you weren't going to hear a sermon. You were going to be in the presence of the Almighty God who is establishing a residence, a house on this earth. This was important because you just didn't wonder and say, I wonder if God is here. No, go to the temple. He's there. Jesus said, two men go up to the temple on the same day. Now watch this. Two men in the same religion, worshiping the same God in the same temple at the same time, doing the same thing, wanting the same outcome, the access to the almighty God. It was indelibly stamped in every Jewish mind. Whenever the temple gathered two times a day at dawn and at three o'clock in the afternoon, the priest would begin by mounting the steps to the temple. An elevated altar was at the top. He would slaughter a lamb as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. He would sprinkle the blood on the sides of the altar, and then he would start moving in the direction of what they called the sanctuary. It was a walled-off building at the far end of the temple. And as he was moving in the direction of the sanctuary to pray, the people could hear the sound of silver trumpets being played. They heard the clash of cymbals. They heard psalms being read. And as the priest went to the sanctuary and stepped behind the wall and was invisible to the people, all of the people knew it was time to pray. Because the, the, the idea was our prayers are being carried up for us through the priest. Does that make sense? So as long as we're praying while he's praying, he's going to channel our prayers to God. So even if you weren't in the temple, but you were 50 miles away, when it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you would stop what you were doing and you would start to pray because you knew that 50 miles from here, there was a guy going behind that wall. And as long as he was praying, you could pray and your prayers would be heard. So on this day, we have two men going into the same temple, watching the same rituals, praying to the same God in the same religion, wanting the same outcome. And from there, they're in opposite directions. One of them is a Pharisee. The Pharisee has patterned his life after Psalm 15. He's kept every one of those six rules, plus all other 607, really, laws in the Old Testament. He is meticulous. He's a reformer. He's something of a cross between the Tea Party and the far right wing. That's a scary mix. 
He wants to bring the nation of Israel back to God. He wants the Bible to be the textbook on which the nation is built. He's a Pharisee. See, if you grew up in church, he has a bad name with you. You don't like Pharisees, but you know a lot of them. They're all around. They're in the room today, but they don't know it. They're still alive. They're good people. They pay their tithes. They pay preachers like me to preach against Pharisees like them. They're meticulous. They're conservative. They're revivalistic. They are serious about their faith. On the other side is a tax collector. According to the Midrash, the collection of Jewish interpretations of the books of the law, tax collectors were on par with murderers and robbers. They ranked among people that you didn't have to tell the truth to. You could lie to them and it was okay. You didn't have to receive them into your home. They were not allowed to judge any cases and they were not allowed to testify in a court. Most people believe that they were almost never seen in the temple. They were not forbidden to go to the temple, but it was because the temple was so opposite of who a tax collector was. They were on par with hookers and thieves and swindlers and drug addicts and peddlers, all the people you're supposed to stay away from. They go into the same temple on the same day and they pray two different prayers. One of them, the Pharisee, is looking up to heaven. That's how every good person prayed back in those days. You saw the child doing this. They all did that. And the prayer that he's praying is hardly a prayer at all. He says, oh God, I thank you that I am not like other people. He doesn't mean worse. He says, I am not a thief or um, a rogue or an adulterer. And least of all, I am not like one of these here tax collectors. On the other side, there is a tax collector who is not looking up at all. He can't. He's mortified by his own nature. He knows that something is wrong, and so all he can do is just to mutter a simple prayer. Oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Only the word he uses for merciful here is different. What he actually means is not, oh, God, have pity on me, a sinner. What he actually says is, oh, God, make an atonement for me, a sinner. Pardon me, a sinner. Change me, a sinner. Two men, same day, same God, same religion, same action, wanting the same outcome. Only one of them goes home 
right with God. The other one does not. And here is Jesus' shocking message in this parable. Two people can attend the same church on the same day, hear the same sermon, read the same scripture at the same time from the same God in the same religion, and we can leave with two different outcomes. That's the first big payoff. Because if y'all thought that part of getting close to God was coming to church, what the story seems to suggest is that while we may all be in the presence of God in this room right now, there may actually be layers of closeness to him. That, okay, we're all here, but there are some of us who are closer than other people. Being here right now does not necessarily make a person close to God. That's the big payoff. Then the second one is just like it. The one who is closest to God is often not the one you think it is. This is big news. It isn't always the preacher. Sometimes it's the stripper. It ain't the one who reads their Bible every day. Sometimes it's the one who doesn't know how to read. It isn't one who has never broken the Ten Commandments. It is one who has broken all of the Ten Commandments and they've ruined their lives against the Ten Commandments. It isn't the one who is always in church on Sunday. Sometimes it's the one who sneaks in the back and sits in an invisible corner because they're afraid, as they always say, that the roof will cave in on them if they ever step into the sanctuary. And we smile and chuckle at that. And these people are serious. But the shocking news of Jesus is it isn't always who you think it is. Sometimes it is somebody else. Sometimes it's you, but sometimes it isn't you. And so the news of the parable is it does not matter where you came from or what you've done. It does not matter what your limitations are, what your flaws are, how deep is your sin, how far away from God you feel. If you come into the temple in the right posture, you can be close to God. That's big news. Because some of you have said to me a hundred times, I don't fit here. I don't belong in this church, man. I say, what do you mean, dude? I don't belong in this church. And some of you say, I don't have all those, those degrees. I had a guy in this gas station across the street stop me one morning. He said, I listen to you every single week. That seems to make sense to me. I said, thank you, keep listening. He turned around to pay the bill. And then before he left, he looked at me like this and he said, I'm just as smart as all those people in your church, aren't I? I hope he's listening right now. You bet you are. The rest is footnotes, man. If your heart is in the right place, you can be close to God, whatever else you've done. 
You see, our problem is that what drives us into the presence of God is not our passion. It isn't our talent. It's not our education. It's not our abilities. And it certainly isn't our theology. What drives us to the presence of God, says Jesus in this parable, is our human need. And here is the great paradox, O church. The longer you've been a Christian, the better is your life, probably. And therefore, the more removed you become from human need. Not others, yours. When the Pharisee prays standing by himself, God, I thank you that I am not like all the other people. I am not like, and notice who he draws. The worst he can find. We do it too, don't we? I'm not like, I'm no, at least I'm not like that. He says, I thank you in the New American Standard that I am not like thieves and rogues and adulterers and tax collectors. He isn't lying. He isn't like that. He's not telling you a lie. He's just not telling you the whole truth. You see, the longer you have followed God, you tend to focus only on things you're good at. And, and you become blind to your limitations. So how do we get into the presence of God? Driven by human need. Oh, this is a hard question for me. Because this is easy for some people who are always down on themselves. Some of you are that way. You're hard on yourselves. You're really great people, but you don't think you are. So you have no trouble being humble and contrite. But how does someone in this room who is smart and talented and competitive and determined and successful, how do they come into the presence of God? On need. The key is to watch the tax collector. He's your ticket. Pay attention to him. Some of us think we are like tax collectors because we know how much we hate Pharisees. William Law says, you consider yourselves humble, but only because you know how much you hate proud people. Keep listening. He says, but you never once in your life hated any pride except that which you have seen in other people. So consider yourselves humble, he said, only insofar as you hate pride only in yourself and never hate it in other people, and you call for humility only from yourself, and you never call for it in other people. 
C.S. Lewis said, if you want to know whether you're proud or not, just ask yourself, how do you like it when people snub you, when they ignore you? If it rankles you a bit, you may have at least a little of the disease. So keep your eye on the tax collector. He's the secret. Here's a few things. First, it begins with an honest appraisal of ourselves. Even successful, talented, smart, powerful, rich, determined people can be honest with themselves if they have help. Give other people permission to tell you the truth. Now, we may say, oh, but, but they can. People can tell me anything. I think that. But I have not seen a long line of people in this room at my door or on my email. Some of you are not afraid, that's to be sure. <laughs> but most of you are not beating the door down to tell me where my flaws or my sins are. Apparently, I give off something that makes you think you don't want to mess with that. I have a hunch that other people may feel that about you. They don't know what you're going to say if they approach you about those things. They don't want to hurt you. They don't want to set you back. They want to help you, but they don't know how to say it. And so I believe that God has put around us really good-natured people who love us, and they have the ability to tell us the truth. They just don't know if they can do it or not. And so I have to posture myself in such a way to those people that they feel like they can be heard. When I was a young preacher in a small church, I was working as hard as I could, and we had this lady in the church. She was 80, 85 years old, and she would interrupt my sermons by singing, just stand up and sing, right in the middle of the sermon. Please don't do that right now. Because <laughs> I, I, I needed to say, that annoyed me to death. And the song that she would always sing, she would always clap her hands like this, and she would always start singing, makes me love everybody, makes me love everybody, the old-time religion. And I used to think, shut up. I, in the pulpit? You guys think, you know, it's all about the notes? No, we have another half of our brain that's, oh, I know what you're doing. And so I called my dad one day and I said, she is driving me. She would walk out and put positive mental attitude articles in my car on my seat and then say the next week, did you get the article? Yes. Did you read it? No. You should read it, Pastor. That would be so good for you. So I called my dad, and I said, what is her problem? She either needs to change or go to heaven. <laughs> he, said, he said, what is she trying to tell you? I said, I don't know, but it, it 
It's nothing. He said, there, is there anything? Is she on to anything? I said, no. There, I, no. I, he said, Steve, she must be on to something. Sometimes our critics are like cartoon drawers. They tend to overemphasize a feature that is true of us. If they draw you with a really large nose, it's probably because even though your nose isn't that big, it's bigger than most people's nose. So my dad said, Steve, if she is over-characterizing you, she is on to something. Listen to it. That's first. Boy, that is hard. Man, that's hard. Because I think you're like me. If I knew it was wrong, I'd change it. Well, that's the point. You don't. <laughs> you need people. So it starts with a genuine appraisal of ourselves that other people can help us with. Okay? 94% of all college professors believe they are Above average. <laughs> Dude, I love you. Do the math. We tend to overestimate ourselves. And if you're there right now thinking, no, I don't. See what I mean? <laughs> Second. And this is really important. On the one hand, we must have an honest appraisal of ourselves. God, what is my true condition in spite of my talent and all my success? What are my limitations and who have you put around me who can help me find those? And it has to be matched with an equal and opposite genuine desire to be rid of those sins and limitations. This is a big change in the last 20 to 30 years. When I was a boy, the holy justified person was someone who lived above sin. But in the last 20 to 30 years, the holy justified person is one who continues to sin, but thank God he's honest about it. So what we have is a generation of people who really aren't getting over anything, but thank God they are so genuine. And they will continue to ask God for forgiveness as if they could never be free from that sin. So the tax collector will pray, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, make atonement for the person who is a sinner. He is not saying, God, forgive me for what I have done wrong. He is saying, God, make atonement for the man who is a sinner. Some of you should stop asking God to forgive you. Just ask him to change you. You see, our problem is not really our sins. It's the scaffolding that we build up around our sins in order to protect them.
and rationalize them. Explain them away like everybody else. It isn't the flaw, my friend. It's the way you protect the flaw. And there is a way out. It is to ask God, seek humbly atonement for me, the sinner. So on the one hand, there is a genuine appraisal of ourselves. God, no matter what I have done, whatever my body of work is, thank you for all of these things. But these are my flaws, my sins, my limitations. And it is matched with an equal and opposite desire for genuine change, for atonement for me, the sinner. And last thing, and all that's left really then, is trust. Verse 9 says, Jesus spoke these words to people who trusted in themselves. And the parable to the, the meaning of the parable was, you cannot trust in yourself. You can only trust in one who can do something about it. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, help me out, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we confess our sins. If you cover them, you'll leave with them. But if you confess them, I guarantee you, he will absolve them.